All right. Good evening, guys. We'll come together. So in my group, Yet said ink. I don't know about that one. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. So happy to be here with you guys tonight. I'm excited. Um, just to introduce myself, my name is Seichi. Um, I'm a pastoral intern here working with Francis, helping out with Beacon. Um, it's been three months since I've been here at Lighthouse. Um, and I'm excited for the new school year, getting to know e um, you guys more personally. And I'm so looking forward to seeing how the Lord will work through his word to continue to make you guys like Christ. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 110. That will be our text tonight. If you've been with us in the summer, Francis has been walking us through the Psalms. And people have categorized the Psalms in many ways. Psalms of wisdom, like Psalm 1, which Francis preached on first. Uh, you have didactic Psalms, Psalms that give instruction, like uh, Psalm 73, which Francis preached on last week. You have Psalms of lament, which is Psalm 3. Uh, which uh, I think it was back in June or July that Francis preached on. And you have penitential psalms, psalms that talk about sin and forgiveness. And actually, Winston is going to preach on that next week. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a royal psalm. And a royal psalm deals with a king in some aspect of his life. It could be a coronation. It could be his battles. And a royal psalm could be about an earthly king or God as king. Psalm 110 is special because it's not only a royal psalm, it's a messianic psalm. It's not talking about an earthly king. It's talking exclusively about a messianic king. And what makes this psalm even more special is that it's the most often quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. And according to one commentator, 11 times it's quoted and 14 times it's alluded to. So that alone should make us wonder, what makes this psalm so significant that even on the words of Jesus, on the lips of Jesus himself, it would be quoted? So with that said, let me open in a word of prayer. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you, God, that before us we have your words, words of eternal life. And I pray that you would use them to renew our affection for you. That you would help us see with clarity a captivating vision of Christ. Do this for the sake of your glory and the honor and name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Do you know friends or acquaintances who have gone through LASIK surgery? Uh, earlier this year, in the summer, I went on a two-week trip to Japan, and I decided to go visit a friend. Um, he is struggling with his faith, and the reason why I wanted to reach out to him was because two years ago, he had LASIK surgery, but it proved unsuccessful. And so since then, for the past two years, he's been struggling with the side effects of LASIK. And even when I met up with him and talked with him, it's been two years, but his condition had not really improved. I could tell he was in discomfort. We had to meet inside. He couldn't go outside because the sun would be too bright. And the constant refrain in his questions was, why? You know, how could God be so good through this ordeal? The possible side effects of LASIK surgery are dry eyes, glare, damage to your cornea. And if you do a little bit more research, there are reports of laser eye surgery-related depression and suicides. And you read these horror stories online, you keep hearing the same thing. I wish I could go back in time. I wish I was exposed to more information. But you probably know as well as many people, that the procedure is almost always a success. Just a few months ago, when I was helping out with VBS here at Lighthouse, 
I met a, uh, someone, a mother, who was volunteering with me. She had gone through LASIK, and it was a success for her. It was fine. The procedure went well. According to one research, LASIK is an unprecedented 96% patient satisfaction rate, and that is incredibly high. Since around 1999, 10 million Americans have gone through LASIK. And even today, around 700,000 LASIK surgeries are done each year. People are willing to spend thousands of dollars to have their eyes fixed. They know about the possible side effects, those risks, but they're willing to go through it. Why is that? Because frankly, they don't want to have to keep wearing glasses, or they don't want to have to go through the hassle of putting in and taking out contact lenses. And I get it, because I wear glasses, and I know what it's like, because I, I like to play sports, and I don't like having to wear glasses on when I play basketball, or having to keep wearing contact lenses on, plus they can be expensive. And it would be ideal if with our natural eyes, we could see clearly without any blurring or any squinting. But are we just as concerned over the condition of the eyes of our heart? Would you be just as distraught and willing to take huge risks if you knew your vision of Christ is blurred? If your vision of Christ is not what it should be? Aren't the consequences far more devastating if we can go on with our lives with such a small view of Christ that he hardly makes a difference in the way you live your life? Friends, the reality is, as the week goes on, so many things enter our minds. And many of these things are things that we need to give thought to, good and necessary things. But if we're not careful, they can occupy our minds. They can threaten to steal our affections for Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, because we can easily be distracted. And not only be distracted, we can so quickly become absorbed with lesser things, with infinitely lesser glories. Why do we need the message of Psalm 110? It's because we need a clear vision of Christ, as sharp as it can be. Why do we go to the optometrist's office not once, but we keep going? It's not as if we see an eye chart never to see it again. It's because as we age, our physical vision gets worse and worse. And at some point, we need to have our eyes checked again. So it is with us, as long as we live in this flesh with indwelling sin, we need to have our spiritual vision checked and corrected where it needs to be. But there's more than that. You need a vision, a clear vision of Christ, not just for your sake, but for the sake of those around you. And when you went to the DMV to get your driver's license, you got a vision test. Why was that? It's because if you are unable to see clearly, it will affect not only your safety, but the safety of others on the road. Your view of Christ matters because it won't just affect your spiritual health. It will affect the health of the body of which you are a vital part. So let's consider our spiritual health because there's not a single person in this room who doesn't struggle to varying degrees with laziness, apathy towards God, feelings of guilt, lack of love for your brothers and sisters, lack of love for unbelievers, irritability, unrighteous anger, sexual lust, envy, or the careless use of our tongue? What is going to help us? What will give you the necessary fuel for a heart renewed in love. It's eyes that are transfixed on the glories of Christ. So let's go to Psalm 110. We will read. I'm gonna be reading from the NASB, a Psalm of David. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The key idea of this psalm is this. Yahweh establishes the reign of the messianic king-priest. One more time. Yahweh establishes the reign of the messianic king-priest. In verse 1, right away, David presents us with two references to the Lord. The first Lord is, in your Bibles, it's most likely in all caps, signifying that he is Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel's God. The second Lord is acknowledged by David the author to be his Lord. And as Christians, we immediately think, and rightly so, that this is referring to the Father and the Son. It's no problem in our minds to conceive the Lord and the Lord. But remember that this is Old Testament Israel before the appearing of Christ. We know that the Jews, the Israelites, believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's incredible that David here refers to the Lord distinct from Yahweh. Remember that David, he is the nation's king, the highest authority in Israel. And this David calls someone distinct from Yahweh his own personal Lord, his superior. Well, who can this be? Well, Yahweh's oracle, what he says, what the Father says, makes it clear that he is none, this person is none other than the Messiah. And that explains why this psalm is referenced so often in the New Testament. It's a messianic psalm. Fast forward a thousand years, you see the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they want to trap Jesus. And so Jesus asks them a question. This is in Matthew 22. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees respond back, the Christ is the son of David. Jesus then reads verse 1 of Psalm 110 and then confounds them with this question. If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? How can the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? And the Pharisees didn't get it. That before them stood the Messiah, who is both the eternal Son of God and the Son of David. Oftentimes, when we're out in the public, maybe we're hanging out or studying at a coffee shop, we, hear over, uh, we overhear conversations around us. And sometimes uh, they're kind of conversations that we don't want to hear. Uh, but then there are those Rare times, maybe it's not rare, but we hear something that really piques our attention. And we want to listen. And this happened to me the other day. And as I heard this conversation, I pretended like I was not paying attention. I was doing my own thing, looking at my screen, pretending like I'm working. But I'm focusing on this conversation that's taking place. And has that happened to you? And something that they said grabs your attention. Your ears perk up, and you want to listen to every word they say. You don't want them to have any distractions. You don't want them to stop talking. You don't want any interruptions. Because you know that this, whatever they're talking about, has potential value. It could be something important to you or something weighty. You don't want to miss it. David here overhears a conversation of immense 
worth. It's an inter-Trinitarian conversation. The Father is speaking to the Son. You don't find many instances of that in Scripture. No man ought to be privileged to hear a conversation like this, which is taking place in another realm, in a realm of transcendence. The Father is speaking to the Son, and a mere man gets to hear what the Father says. So what is it that the Father declares? Well, he's giving a command. Sit at my right hand. And to be seated at someone's right hand is a sign of honor. It's a position of privilege. But never in the Old Testament has it been said that a mere man would sit at the right hand of God. Who is worthy to sit at God's right hand? And we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord Jesus is speaking to believers to Laodicea, in Laodicea. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. This is the key point here. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Who is worthy? Only the Messiah is worthy to be seated at the right hand of God. He alone shares the throne of Yahweh. The theological language for this is the heavenly session of Christ. Session referring to the time period when Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. The New Testament revelation teaches us that God the Father sent the Son into the world to carry out a plan. And this plan was to accomplish the work of redemption. That is, the eternal Son of God, he took upon himself a human nature so that as a man, he could live a perfectly obedient life in our stead and so that he could give himself up as the perfect atoning sacrifice. He was raised on the third day, declared to be the Son of God with power. He finished the work that he set out to do. And after appearing to many for a period of 40 days, he ascended to be with the Father. That is where he is right now. And Christ will come back again until all his enemies will be subdued under his feet. And the Old Testament gives a very picturesque illustration of one's one's enemies being subdued under his feet. Remember Joshua, he's with the Israelites uh, in the new, uh, the promised land. And Joshua captures the city called Ai. And the king of Jerusalem hears about this. He becomes afraid. And so he asks for help from the nearby Amorite kings. You have five Amorite kings, including the king of Jerusalem, waging war against Israel. And this is the famous battle when the Lord caused the sun to stand still. The Lord delivers the Amorites into the hand of the Israelites. The kings of the Amorites flee and they hide in a cave. Large stones are rolled in front of the cave so that the kings can't escape. And the rest of the Amorites are slaughtered by the Israelites. And so Joshua, after all the fighting is over, he commands his men to bring forth these kings. And what does Joshua say? He speaks to the chiefs of the men of war, and he tells them, come near. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the kings are struck down, put to death, and hanged. That pictures the kingly authority of Christ. It's complete and utter victory over his enemies. But the father in Psalm 110, he's not done speaking. We go on to verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. In the battle with the Amorite kings, Joshua, he declared to the people of Israel, it's Yahweh, the Lord your God, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In the same way, Yahweh will empower the sovereign rule of the Messiah. But unlike Joshua, Christ is no mere human leader. He's no mere human king. 
His scepter is a mighty scepter, a scepter of sovereign power, a scepter that belongs to the king of kings alone. That is the king who is over all other kings. He shares the father's throne now, but there will come a day when he will come down from heaven and he will establish his rule from Zion, which is Jerusalem, and he will rule over an earthly kingdom. If there is any doubt as to Christ's present sovereign authority, there will be no denying of his absolute supremacy when he establishes his kingdom on earth. So, what does it matter to you that Christ has been given dominion? And remember that Christ, after he accomplished the work of redemption on the cross, he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That the Messiah is sovereign king has absolutely everything to do with you and me. What the king has commanded us to do we joyfully obey. We go and make disciples. We baptize. We teach them. What do we teach them? To obey all that Christ has commanded, that is his disciples. But that implies something. That implies that we ourselves must learn all that Christ has commanded and what Christ has commanded through his apostles. What are further implications of Christ's kingship in your life? It's not enough to just say, is Christ the king of your life? We need to dig deeper. Is Christ the king over every sphere and aspect of your life? Is Christ the king over your studies? On the one hand, are you lacking diligence and being flat out lazy about your studies? Or on the other hand, which is probably most of you, or a possible temptation, has education become the all-consuming Lord of your life? Is Christ king over how you think about your future, your career, how you carry yourself even now at work? Is Christ king over the use of your money, your resources, how you use your free time, your choice of entertainment, what you watch on the internet, how you relax, your use of technology. Is Christ king over your relationships, how you love the church, how you use your gifts to build up the body, how you serve the people of God, and if you're a guy, how you treat your sisters, and if you're a young woman, how you treat your brothers, how you relate to unbelieving classmates and family members, how you evangelize them. If somebody were to follow you around without being creepy, just observing you, observing the way you live, observing how you eat, study, go to class, work, exercise, play, talk with friends, post on Facebook, Instagram, how you talk with professors, strangers, can that person observe that in all these things, Christ is your king. Would that person be able to observe that you are not the authority of your life, that you follow a higher authority, the authority of Christ? His kingship makes a difference in the lives of his people. Let's look at verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now in the future coming of Christ, when he will rule on earth, God's people will not be apathetic. God's people will not be indifferent. Now the word for offer themselves freely is actually a noun that can be translated a free will offering or a voluntary offering. And that's what the people of God are a voluntary offering unto the Lord. In serving the king, there's no stubbornness, no begrudging attitude, no unwillingness. The people of God will be clothed in holy garments, set apart from the Lord's enemies. The people of God will be morally pure and blameless. The youth or the young men will be plentiful, 
many as the dew in the morning. They're fresh and reinvigorated as they rule with and serve Christ their master. The subjects of the king are eager and zealous. Now, brothers and sisters, if that is our glorious future, that we would serve our glorious king freely and in holiness, how are we doing now? Is our service to Christ and his people, to Lighthouse, to this church, to the people in your life, whether in evangelism or in discipleship, is it done always with joy, with a pure heart, pure motives, not out of a fear of man, preserving only the outward form, but the substance is lacking? Is the kingship of Christ perfectly reflected in our lives? And we would be quick to say, no, it's, it's not perfectly reflected. We fail, we sin, and we fall short. So how do we get to this picture in verse 3? How do we become like this people? Well, the psalm presents the Messiah not only as sovereign king, but as an eternal priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as people, as human beings, we change our minds often. And just earlier today at Lighthouse, we had a staff hangout. And what we did was we went out to different, or I think most of us went to Mitsua, and we got one of our favorite snacks or desserts to share with the rest of the staff. I came in a little late, around 1.40, I hadn't eaten lunch, and so I was not planning to eat a lot of dessert. Pastor Gavin had offered to me ice cream from Kansha. And if you've been there, some good stuff right there. But I didn't eat lunch yet, so in my mind, I immediately thought, no. Um, But then I thought more about it. Man, it's Kansha. And then he asked me one more time, and I... And I gave in. I was like, forget lunch. I'll just eat ice cream. (laughs) I changed my mind. And that's a trivial story. On a more serious note, when I began college at UCLA, uh, I started as a phi-sci major. I wanted to study medicine to be a surgeon. And so I wanted to get into med school. But I realized my freshman year, yeah, I don't think medicine is for me. And so (laughs) I decided not to go uh, pursue this track of pre-med. And by the end of my sophomore year, actually that summer, I switched my major from phi-sci to applied linguistics. It's pretty different, a radical change. And I changed my mind about that. And as people, we always change our minds, for better or worse. And what does that reveal about us? As creatures, we're finite. We're limited. We have conflicting desires, changing emotions. We don't have exhaustive knowledge. We don't know everything about the future, even the present or the past. We're constantly gathering new data that affect how we make decisions. But the Lord, he is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. From eternity past, from long ago, his plans are set in stone. They are irrevocable. What is it then that Yahweh has declared that's unalterable? It's this message that Christ is a priest forever, forever. David, who is writing the psalm, he's seen the priests in his days sacrifice daily animals, these Animals would be butchered, slaughtered. David has seen not only the animals die, but the priests die. The priests would come and go. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 7, 23, the priest existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. The priests all die. So how can there be a perpetual priesthood? In the words of Hebrews 7.16, only if this priest 
is according to the power of an indestructible life. In other words, only if the priest is according to the likeness of Melchizedek. So we have to figure out who this figure, Melchizedek, is. And he's mentioned only one other time in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14, Lot, the nephew of Abram, is captured by kings. He's in the middle of of war among kings. So Abram, who hears that Lot has been captured, goes out to rescue him. Abram defeats these kings, and he rescues Lot. And in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, it seems like out of nowhere, this figure, Melchizedek, appears and talks to Abram. What does he say? Well, he blesses Abram and gives to him a tenth of everything that Melchizedek owns. And then right after that, the story goes on without another mention of Melchizedek. It's strange. Who is Melchizedek? Where did he come from? And what happened to him afterwards? The next time Melchizedek is mentioned is in Psalm 110 in this very verse. And then he appears in the New Testament only in the book of Hebrews. Eight times, actually, in just three chapters, chapters 5 through 7. So this is what the author of Hebrews says in 7, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he, referring to Melchizedek, remains a priest perpetually. So that's the vital connection between Melchizedek and the Messiah. They are both a priest perpetually, forever. But that's not the only point of significance. The Messiah resembles Melchizedek in that he is also both king and priest. And we need to understand that in the government of Old Testament Israel, you don't share the offices of both king and priest. You could compare it to actually our American government. What would, what would you think would happen if our current president tweeted the following? We need to get laws in place. And these people in the House and Senate are slowing things down. We ought to get rid of Congress. And while we're at it, the Supreme Court as well. That's the fastest way we'll make America great again. Now, just to say up front that I'm sure he'll never tweet that, all right? But this is just an example. But you can imagine if he were to tweet something like that, how outrageous people will be. I mean, the news media will be all over that. It will not go well. And we know that according to our Constitution, that's never going to happen. The highest office of the executive branch is never going to eliminate the legislative and judicial branches. I mean, he has no authority to do that. The president cannot be, at the same time, a Supreme Court justice, a senator, and a representative. And to wield that level of authority would make him a dictator, a despot. And it would defeat the whole purposes, purpose of checks and balances. So it was with the offices of king and priest in Israel. Kings came from the line of Judah. Priests came from the line of Levi. The high priest came from the line of Aaron. You couldn't serve in both offices at the same time. Do you remember King Uzziah? He was a king who started out well. In 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah did right in the sight of God. He continued to seek God. And because he did, the Lord prospered him. He was successful in war. He built towers in Jerusalem. He was marvelously helped until he was strong. What happened to him? He became proud and acted corruptly. Well, how was he acting unfaithfully to the Lord? He goes into the temple of God so that he can burn incense on the altar. But that was the job of the priest. Azariah the priest goes into the temple after King Uzziah with 80 other priests and tells the king, it's not for you to burn incense to the Lord. It is only for the sons of Aaron 
who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from God. And how does the king respond? He's enraged. Who are you to tell me what to do? But what happens to him? Leprosy breaks out on his forehead. He becomes unclean, and he remains a leper, disgraced to the day of his death. King Uzziah could not serve as both king and priest. So we go back to Psalm 110. Who can be both king and priest? Melchizedek, he was a priest of the Most High God, and he was also a king of Salem. That is the king of peace. And so it is that only the Messiah can fulfill this role of both king and priest. So why is it significant that the messianic king is also an eternal priest? Two years ago, uh, I was one of the groomsmen for a dear friend of mine. Uh, We got to know each other in college. He was an unbeliever first when I met him. But after meeting up with him and my friends from actually Grace on campus were reaching out to him. Um, after a year or so, he came to know the Lord, and we rejoice over that. And this brother became a close friend of mine, and he asked me to be actually his best man at his wedding. And this, this guy, this brother, is super kind, super generous, uh, and he actually bought each of his groomsmen a matching suit and a tie. So at his reception, the groom and the bride, he had us uh, groomsmen and bridesmaids outside of the reception building, and they were going to introduce us as we walked into the building and onto the stage. Now, what would you think of me if you were a guest at the reception and you saw me walking up on stage, not with my suit and tie, but with some nasty, old, torn-apart shirt, some raggedy shorts that's, like, rainbow-colored. I mean, you'd be embarrassed just looking at me. I mean, what would my friend, the groom, say? And he'd be like, dude, (laughs) where's your suit? Friends, why must it be that your king is also your eternal priest? When you die and appear before a holy God, with what will you appear before him? With the most righteous of your deeds? They're stained with sin. Scripture says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. It's as if I were to appear at my friend's reception with the dirty, worn-out clothes, thinking that, hey, this is comfortable for me. Why can't you accept it? It's as if I were to think that these clothes were acceptable when my friend had given to me a new and fresh suit. Brothers and sisters, you and I need the righteousness of another, the righteousness of someone who's lived a perfect and obedient life, someone who's given himself as a spotless and blameless sacrifice. Only this Christ, who is your eternal priest, only this one who did not stay dead, but rose from the grave and is now presently at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, praying for you, only through his work can you appear before a holy God. Otherwise, you and I would have no hope. We would still be in our sin. So what will you do next week when you are laboring in love for your beloved king and you fall hard into sin? Or your conscience is afflicted because of what's going on in your heart, bitterness towards someone, envy, or a lustful thought, or a presumptuous attitude. What will you do? You must turn to your great high priest. You must cling to him, 
Mourn over your sin. Confess to him. Plead with Christ that he would increase your faith. That you would believe that Christ is better than whatever sin your flesh wants to pursue. Know that by Christ's blood, he secured unrestricted access to the Father. This access which can never be taken away from you. Know that your great high priest intercedes for you even now, this very moment, so that in the grace of God, you can draw near to him. What should you do? Turn to him. Rejoice that there is now no condemnation for you. Give thanks to this merciful high priest. There ought not to be a single day that we don't turn to our great high priest. So we've seen in verses 1 through 3 that the Messiah is sovereign king. In verse 4, that he's an eternal priest. And now we turn to verse 5. We see that the Messiah is a victorious conqueror. He says in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Now who is the Lord referring to here? I take it to mean that this is Yahweh the Lord Yahweh, who is at the right hand of the Messiah. And here's why. The point of this psalm is that Yahweh gives dominion to the Messiah. In verse 1, we see that the Lord Yahweh says to the Messiah. Verse 2, Yahweh will stretch forth the Messiah's strong scepter. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn that the Messiah is a priest forever. And so in like manner, verse 5 seems to be saying that Yahweh the Lord is the one who empowers the Messiah. What follows in verses 5 through 7, it's a description of the inseparable work of the Father and the Son. You can't separate the two. Their work is one. But that work is manifested through the Son. So in verse 5, we read, He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This passage is just one example out of many in the Old Testament that depict God's judgment. The day of the Lord. It is a fearful and frightening thing. The king of heaven and earth will shatter all earthly kings. The image here is gory and gruesome. Bodies will be strewn over the earth. In verse 6, in the Hebrew it says, He will crush the head in the singular, the head over a broad country. And if you have an ESV, it's probably footnoted there. The head. This could refer collectively to the chiefs of Christ's enemies, or it could refer to one. One main Satan-inspired leader. And this verse is interesting because surrounding it, you see the words shatter, crush. And it brings to mind the messianic, the very first messianic promise in Genesis 3.15. If you remember, the Lord judges the serpent and says that the seed or says the seed of the woman shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There will be a day when the promised seed of the woman, who is Christ himself, will put a final end to all his enemies. That includes Satan and even death itself. And at the end, in verse 7, we read that the head of the king will be lifted up. It's an expression of victory. The Messiah will overwhelmingly conquer. And our eyes will behold the exalted king in his beauty. So where are you in your relationship with this Christ? And I don't know each of you personally. And so the question has to be asked. Are you a friend of Christ Or are you his foe? Does Christ know you as his beloved? Or are you a stranger to him? 
The word of God says that believers were once an enemy of God, hostile to him. It says in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, you might claim to believe in the Son, but if you do not obey him, then that claim is a false one. And you cannot fool the eyes of God. His wrath abides on you. Christ said he will come to judge the world. We've seen that in this psalm. But the first time he came, that was not his mission. John 3:17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The good news is that God is patient. The day of wrath has not yet come. Today is still the day of salvation. There is still time to repent and believe in the Son so that you would not perish but have eternal life. And so I plead with you, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your King and your Savior, that you would confess your sin, repent, and turn to him, cling to him, embrace him. To the believers, are you ready for the arrival of your King? Christ the King says in Revelation 22, uh, 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Are you eagerly anticipating and longing for the coming of your king? May you and I never lose sight of King Jesus so that we become nonchalant and even indifferent about his appearance. When Christ comes, may he not find his people half-hearted and languishing, too enamored with the little trinkets of this passing world, that you and I would hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to conclude with a story that I read not too long ago about a father and his sixth grade son in Japan. In Japan, sixth grade is the highest grade in elementary school. So this student was preparing to start middle school. Uh, But to get into the better schools, you need to pass an entrance exam. This father, he was a strict disciplinarian. And he would threaten his son with a knife so that his son would do well on the exam. The father said, that he had no intention to do anything serious with the knife, that it was just a scare tactic to get him to study. Since 2016, this father has been on trial for the murder of his son. And I read stories like this in Japan because it reminds me that Japan needs a clear vision of Christ. So does every one of us. Your king is not like that man. Your king is not a cruel and merciless dictator. Your king is the king of love. He is a sympathetic high priest. He can come alongside you in your weaknesses. He is for you, not against you. He is for your joy, which is your holiness. Will we fall short? Will we fail to always be pleasing to him? Yes, we'll fail. But the promise and the hope of the gospel is this. Who's going to condemn you? Who's going to accuse you? There's no one. No one. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is why Psalm 110 
is so significant for us. It's because he is both king, seated at the right hand of God, and he is also priest interceding for us that we can be certain that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Are you going through trials, distresses, doubts, sickness? As Pastor Kim says, there's nothing that you're going through, nothing that hasn't first come through the filter of God's love for you. Let us then vigorously, with zeal, serve our king with joy. Let me pray. Father, we remember your son who is at your right hand. And we look and behold the king in his beauty. And someday, someday, we will see with our own eyes this great king. God, we long for that day. It is the cry of our hearts. Father, we live in this body of death dealing with indwelling sin. And Father, we want to have a glorified heart and a glorified body when we will be able to enjoy deep, intimate, sinless fellowship with you. Father, until that day, would you strengthen us? Strengthen our resolve. God, put strength in every stride that we would walk in holiness, that we would walk in the Spirit. Pray that, God, for each of us here who know you, Lord, would you increase our faith? Would you cause growth in us? Make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to make an impact in our classrooms, in our schools, in our universities, in our, where we work, Father. We ask all these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus' name. Amen.